Never talk to cops. Contacted by the police. Stop. Don't talk alone. Even so-called nice cops try to get people to admit violating laws. You are not required to speak with any cop or agent. Call a lawyer instead. The job of cops is to defend existing power structures, not to protect the public. Don't talk to cops. is on fire. Those who know me well understand that I am sometimes prone to hyperbole. This is not one of those times. My world is on fire. Twenty miles away, a forest burns. Half a continent away, forests burn. While flames do not nip at my heels, the fires rage, sending forth a billowing harbinger whose breath stings the eyes and burns the throat. With half my summer consumed by this flaming hunger, I have found it difficult to not believe that the apocalypse is upon us. Some experts on writing discourage the use of words such as apocalypse or Nazi because they are so extreme as to overshadow the author's intent. This season, there was no other adequate word to describe my reality. My morning walk across the courtyard for coffee began with an otherworldly orange sun suspended in a thick haze that obscured the east bench of Laramie's Valley. The superpower of staring at the sun is only claimed by our current president, whereas I was granted a glimpse of its fiery crucible every morning and early evening, shrouded in the last dying gasps of so many trees. Every new report of flames brought an inflammation of anxiety. Fire maps showed a town nearly encircled, anticipating the worst, while cowboying up to make it through. The new normal became the new topic of conversation, with just enough gallows humor leavening to render the ashen taste more palatable. Constantly sitting wherever the campfire smoke blows is unlucky. Having the entire forest blow smoke in your face is a whole other level of distress. The fumes literally mute the taste of everything, warping enjoyment of the bitterest IPA or the sweetest of my comrades' confections to somewhere at the edges of flavor, mere hints of taste before the flames came. The omnipresent, unceasing threat created a siege mentality in my system. Flight was the only response my dinosaur brain was processing. I knew that I wouldn't leave, couldn't leave, but how was I going to fight a fire even members of my family, some of whom literally fight fires in the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, couldn't have battled. To alleviate my ever-growing tension, I became obsessed with the safety of our property and its preparedness for what I deemed an imminent conflagration. I directed my obsession toward one particularly annoying botanical nemesis covering at least an acre of the property. This weed grew so densely and left an obnoxious please-burn-me stem perfect for kindling behind. These weeds grew a thick carpet of burnable biomass, just waiting for an ember to nestle into its kindling arms. My obsession led me to pull weeds for days, clearing the area around the house, brought the feeling of satisfaction that comes from completion. It also left me with the clear understanding that the threat was only minimally diminished by my efforts. Adding to frustration was the knowledge that much of the weed would return in the spring. 
All the while, the fires raged on. Even with the onset of cooler weather and a freak snowstorm in the first week of September, the forest continued to burn. Constant air traffic from Forest Service planes buzzed overhead. The C-130 Super Scooper planes flew so low overhead that you could see and wave at the pilots, two people suspended in a minute of surreal semi-normalcy. As the world burned, our nation was in a conflagration, given life to the embers of smoldering racism by our so-called leader. At the same time, our political failures smothered the entire country, a suffocating pox blanket distributed by an orange monster dressed early for Halloween. The conflation of all three factors led to one single cry, I can't breathe. You don't have to be a graduate of the Alanis Morissette School of Irony to see the irony here. Smoke demonizes and torments our lungs. A man's life is choked out live for the nation to see. A gut punching, taking all of our breaths away. All in the context of a raging plague that steals our ability to take in the very smoke-filled air we need to live. The rage ignited when a police officer knelt the life out of George Floyd for nearly nine minutes still smolders today. The plague, having strangled nearly a quarter million Americans, spreads, uncontained, at the same rates as fires engulfing our coasts and mountains. And now our super spreader-in-chief crisscrosses the country in the last days before, perhaps, our very last election, spreading the fire of this virus that has killed so many. Our worlds are on fire. We can't breathe. You're taking our lives. So we have Marco with us, uh, who is on uh, an extended visit here to Solidarity Collective. And we've been wanting to talk for a while now about uh, politics, revolution, psychology, violence and nonviolence, uh, and especially uh, some particular questions um, that we uh, that we all share. Uh, and have somewhat divergent opinions on uh, about many of those topics. So we'll just jump right in and right. and what do you? I mean, I, I was I was thinking that we would actually listen to you for a long time or as long as you <laughs> wanted to. Okay, uh, so had stuff um, to say. Are we officially started now? Mm-hmm. So you're going to edit this? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a thing that makes us sound smarter. It's an app. That where we can actually sound more intelligent. I'm, that's a lie. I, okay. There is no app that makes you sound more intelligent. <laughs> okay. I mean, I... Uh, there is one that makes you sound dumber. It's called Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> I I think, you know, I was thinking about this and I'm like, I'm, I'm super tired. I'm super happy. I'm um, really, really enjoying my life here. And... Uh, um, yeah, so so I'm 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 perhaps not as sharp as I would normally be, but I'm also like much more chill. So I think the you know all in all, it's 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 going to be to everyone's advantage, including me. Okay. <laughs> um, and I also you know I was thinking that I want to come into this conversation with um, no you know with with minimal agenda, shall we say? 
and and just just see see where it flows. Um, and uh, I think you know you gave. Uh, Jordy's here <laughs> with his fanny pack. Yeah. All, right. All right. Anyway, so, yeah. so continue. Yeah. So Matt, you, you know, you gave a pretty good, um, you know, introduction to, to 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 the to the conversation as much as 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 you all know what what we're going to talk about, and I just want to say that um, I would add to that. Um, essentially, um, um, nonviolent communication and authentic relation relating and circling, which is an authentic relating practices, and how all these practices can uh, really contribute uh, significantly to a conversation around uh, social change activism uh, in general and around, uh, you know, anti-capitalism work in specifically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I so I don't know where we want to start or what a good starting point is to to jump in, uh, but uh, I had, you know, something that, that I thought of earlier today, just kind of anecdotally, is uh, I was thinking about, and I've been thinking about a lot of our communication practices, particularly when we have in the in the commune when we have uh, things like we did the uh, the other day. Uh, four of us who had been the sort of skeleton crew of the commune, but in between larger waves of, of members and residents. Uh, four of us had a sit-down discussion that was over two and a half hours long, it turned out, uh, where we sort of went in a circle and talked about, we talked, we surveyed how we felt about power relationships and how they were working in the, uh, in, in the, in our enterprises and in our activities. Uh, we then talked about ourselves, each talked about ourselves and how, we, and what we felt like we could do better uh, and, and just sort of how we felt about things. And then we went around and sort of uh, took turns talking about each other uh, and kind of saying, uh, you know, oh, you brought this up. How can we help with that? Or, oh, you brought this up. You might be being too hard on yourself about this. This is the way I see it and different things like that. Um, and so it reminded me, it's felt like we were at the intersection of two distinct, but perhaps similar traditions of sort of community of, of group communication. And mm. One is a lot of the processes that we've learned over the years as part of the intentional communities movement, working with uh, Jana Ludwig and, and others. And on the other hand, Maoist circles of self-criticism that, um, you know, we are told to, you know, took place and, and perhaps continue to take place if, if there are any true Maoists left in China. Uh, but where, you know, people did exactly that. They sort of sat around and, and, uh, and criticized themselves and, and one another. And that, that is characterized, that is characterized by, by Western representations as being this really oppressive practice. But I wonder what, <laughs> I wonder what it really is. And I wonder what really goes on there because we, we don't really know. We don't really have an unfiltered account of that. But it seems like there is, in some Marxist traditions, there is also this sort of group communication dynamic. And so it's interesting to me that 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 value of the interpersonal and a value of interpersonal processes is something that is 
kind of uh, ubiquitous to um, uh, to social movements and to and particularly to radical social movements. Um, so I just wanted to to put that out there because I thought it was interesting. But but here is I guess a, my lead-in question. Uh, it seems like we all agree on the need for interpersonal liberation and psychological emancipation or whatever words we want to use as a as a companion to as a prerequisite to and a post requisite to like liberatory practices and liberatory politics. Um, and so I wanted to listen to what you had to say about that, about how those processes intersect with people's social work, social and political work, and sure. what you think is necessary for, for those things and kind of what your grounding is on that. Sure, sure. Um, happy to do that. And, I, and, you know, in terms of your opener, I want to say that this what, what you all were doing together, um, it sounds a lot like authentic relating in terms of revealing what's what's true in the moment what's alive and sort of expressing expressing care for other people and sort of finding the win-win and that sounds much more fun than a than a maoist self-criticism circle but we don't know what a maoist self-criticism <laughs> circle actually is so Maybe we should try really we should perhaps try yeah. one but we'd have to we need a we need a leader for it <laughs> um so you know i could open i could open with two just little little just pieces of, of story or context, if you will. I mean, the first is we talked about Dieter Duhm, uh, D-U-H-M. He, he, you know, he, he was a German. Uh, he, he was one of the leaders of the uh, German student uprising in 1968. Um, and he ended up uh, writing a book that became kind of a bestseller in the movement. At the time, it's called Fear and Capitalism. And uh, he was just in his late 20s when this happened. And he had kind of an insight somewhere in this period that um, the issues of uh, competitiveness and jealousy and sexuality uh, were really needed to get handled in any kind of political political work. All right. Because it, you know, it was a problem, shall we say. Um, and... Um, he ended up, um, you know, I won't say withdrawing from active political action, but uh, shifting his focus towards more of a more of a well, solving what he considered the fundamental problems. You know, his famous quote is, um, "We're not going to have peace in the world so so long as men and women are at war with each other." All right, so he considered gender, you know, sexuality extremely important, and he went when he went on to found like three different communities. Um, the first was called the Bahut. B-A-H-U-T-T-E. And basically, you know, he took like 20 people and they moved into a forest in Germany for three years and just basically ran experiments on each other, you know, different types of processes. They they, they, they um, invented a process which later came to be called the ZEG form, uh, Z-E-G-G. Um, it's sort of a group, uh, you know, sort of a large group uh, consciousness type of process. Um, in which one person gets gets the intention the attention of the entire group, which is kind of similar to to, to, to circling and authentic relating also, um, and uh, then he went on to create this uh, the community that became that became the Zeg community Z E G G, um, and they basically took over a uh, an ex prisoner of war camp in East Germany, and they're still active. 
um, and they continue doing seg forums and they continue doing courses on different aspects of, of, of liberation and sexuality and communication. And then he founded a third community that became uh, Tamera, uh, which is in Portugal. And I actually visited there in the spring of 2006, I think it was. I spent about a month in Tamara. It was very, very, very nice location. So that's that's the first. That, that, I mean, that, maybe that would be a first first part, and, and see what kind of questions that brings up. And he was very influenced by Reich, as we discussed. Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Wilhelm Reich was a early twentieth uh, century uh, psychoanalyst who was originally in Freud's circle, or. Part and was part of German, you know, psychoanalytic uh, society, and was also a communist, a member of the German Communist Party. And Reich wrote uh, a book called *The Mass Psychology of Fascism*, which we have here in our library, uh, in which he tied uh, fascism to sort of these twin influences of capitalist crisis on the one hand and uh, repressed, uh, uh, things like repressed sexuality and authoritarian family structures and, and things like that, uh, and sort of repressed sadism and, uh, or sadism as sort of a manifestation of that or a symptom of that. And kind of said that those are, that we, we have to look at both of those things. We can't look at, we can't look at just capitalism and, and socio political economy. We can't just look at, at, um, at uh, psychological conditions that they intersect, they feed off of each other. Right, right, and 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 Reich is this sort of an influence of yours too, right, uh, Matt? Yeah, he, yeah. Uh, I feel like that's correct. I, I and I feel like failure to confront those things uh, is why right. fascism happens as part of capitalist crisis. But it's also, I think, uh, and this is, you know, I, I will, I sometimes get into arguments with my comrades on the left uh, about this, but that, you know, to me, that's also part of why some leftist movements have a tendency to turn authoritarian uh, and why some, you know, I think that you got to do your work uh, or your, or else you're going to reproduce the violence that is the result of the PTSD that you have both personally experienced as well as the generations of, of, collective uh, uh, psychosis that you are also part of. And that's another big thing with Reich. And I remember a play by Robert Anton Wilson called Wilhelm Reich in Hell, uh, in which Reich as this character uh, explains to the audience that the problem is that society is sick uh, and, and seeks to describe this way in which society itself has this psychosis. And I think that that's true. Right, and I, and right. I think that, uh, and I, you know, so I feel like that, makes me somewhat unorthodox, I think, in the sense that, you know, I don't think it's just, well, but I don't think too many people actually think it's just about one or the other. I think most people intuit uh, that um, liberation has to involve a lot of different elements. And so, right, right. And, and, I, um, and I want to sort of remind you of something that, that we talked about yesterday, which is that it's possible, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, you, you said it, so, you know, I, 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 I I, I'm not very familiar with, with social movements in general, um, particularly post, uh, post-Marxist social movements, but, you know, you said it as like, there's a lot of unhealthy people in the, in the movement. <laughs> there's a lot of unhealthy leftists, a which is not to say that there are not about 10 times more unhealthy folks well, on, on yeah. the far right. <laughs> exactly. um, uh, I, I think that, you know, we, 
we often people talk about how the left sort of over polices itself, but I think that's it's precisely I think that's not necessarily a bad thing that we are really careful about comparatively careful about these things. It doesn't mean that, you know, we don't, I mean, there's a, well, yeah. there's a scandal right now going on of a very well-known left, uh, you know, journalist and blogger who apparently, uh, um, uh, you know, apparently, uh, uh groomed, uh, an underage girl a few years back and, you know, uh, or that's the, that's the, uh, that's all, it's all obviously just allegations, but, uh, you know, but whenever this happens, every leftist in the on social media gets up and says, man, the left is fucked up. We really need a, a you know, we really need to examine ourselves. We really need to, uh, you know, to, to do that. And you don't see that necessarily on the on the right. But, right. It's, but it's, it's exactly. still. Yeah, but it's still an issue for sure. Well, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, every, you know, a lot of leaders do, do sexual abuse on, and from all spectrums. But that, mm-hmm. you know, that's indicative of. Uh, again, of what we're talking about is that there's there's um, Wilhelm Reich is one of my uh, mentors because he really first surfaced the uh, what's now uh, called developmental trauma, um, which is now this huge you know topic, and there's a, all kinds of psychological theories that are designed to address uh, developmental trauma, polyvagal theory, and uh, uh, what's the big guy? I can't remember his name. Um, the, the, sort of, they talk about sort of the wisdom of the body and uh, and you mm-hmm. know things that happen to us in early uh, in childhood or early adult, adult, adulthood that mess us up. And this this was kind of like maybe my second opener for for this conversation is that um, under like my idea, and I'll I'll, I'll try and be brief, but uh, is that is that um, Capitalism is a an economic system that evolved on a patriarchy. Okay, so you know, and so capitalism is sort of a kind of a perfect economic system to thrive under patriarchy. Um, and uh, so, so the the overarching model or or or, or system that created um, capitalism is patriarchy. And patriarchy is basically um, it's. Some people think of it as sort of the, the, the you know, the oppression of, of women by men, but it's, and that's a part of it, it's true, but it's much, much larger than that. It's actually the oppression of 90% of the population by 10% of an elite mm-hmm. of the wealthiest, most powerful men and their female allies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely insidious because it's, it's extremely insidious because ultimately it's, 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 it, it creates sort of a value system or a mindset that your worth as a human being is dependent on your success in acquiring wealth and power within this closed system. All right. And that if you are successful in that, you are a good person and you're going to be happy and successful. And if you're not happy and successful or, or for some reason you don't fit into this system, you're kind of a lesser order of human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, and this, you know, it, it tends to mess us up because the because the the, the um, power and wealth are not actually human needs. Okay, they're not human needs. They're 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 um, you know they, they, they you know they they they're a part of our humanity but they're not the, the the root of our humanity and the root of our humanity and this is where you know psychological modalities like movements like nonviolent communication and authentic relating and circling come in the root of our humanity is that we really our 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 core needs 
as human beings are number one to love and be loved, right? And number two to uh, to make a contribution to other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of NBC, he says the fundamental human need is to contribute to life, to contribute to life. All right. And so there's a. I want to say there's a humanism. I mean, this resembles the humanism of, of early Marx and of probably a lot of, of these th- 19th century thinkers who uh, were had more kind of optimistic views of, of human nature if allowed to flourish naturally or, or allowed to develop in a you know, in a, in a unencumbered way or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, I, and I don't know very much about that, but I'm, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people have said this before. All right. Uh, so, um, so this this tends to be, you know, we're sort of we all have developmental trauma as a result of living up under of of, of being raised under uh, patriarchy and being taught sort of this false value system. All right, which which is the false value system being, you know, do you do this and you will be happy and successful. All right, you know, versus simply the elephant in the room, which is that you know. We just want to love and be loved, right? <laughs> that's that's fun. That's fundamentally what we want. And uh, the way to, the way to do that is to um, connect with your feelings and be able to express your need. And you know, if you're using nonviolent communication, you know, it's, it's learning to you know to make a good empathy statement and and, and vulnerability. And um, these are things that we don't talk about. It's like the elephant in the room of human beings. This is this is the this is the root program that human beings are running all the time, whether they're aware of it or not. They're out in the world. They're looking for love, and they're looking to contribute, right? But nobody talks about this. You know, nobody talks about that. So we're, we're basically looking for affection, right? We're we're seeking affection. We're seeking affiliation. You know, we're seeking to belong in some place. And and because nobody talks about this, and because within patriarchy, we don't have permission to speak of our humanity. You know, I just, I don't know myself getting emotional here. We don't have permission to speak of our humanity, which is our need for connection, for affection, right? And what happens, what happens then is that, and this is, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of left, you know, sort of the more, all, all of the leftist, leftist, large-scale mass movements have, suffered from this because when you know when you're not allowed to speak of your humanity the cult psychology becomes much stronger and this is true both on the left and the right okay and we get into a situation where the the movement you know be it you know whatever whatever you know you know perfect example of this is is uh, national social socialism in germany in germany um, the movement fulfills our need for affiliation and for self-respect, right, and for meaning and purpose, um, in a way that is really unhealthy for human beings. Okay, so that's the other sort of piece of context. And mm-hmm. you know, forgive me for for talking so long, but I'm very passionate about this topic. Sure. So, um, if if so, in terms of developing a a praxis and, or and plans of action and organizing. Right. Uh, uh, and if we assume that you know we do we need a mass movement in order to change you know some of these structures uh, you know it, it, it well so first of all I'm assuming that um, 
you know, that this, that whether you call it, whether there is a, a patriarchal base to capitalism or whether it's capitalism or, or, um, uh, hierarchy of, of whatever kind, um, that we, that this can be changed, that this can be eliminated, transformed, transcended. Uh, you know, is that, I mean, is, is that, well, part, of, know, is that part of the, I'm quite is that an axiom of, 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 the, of your theoretical approach? I'm quite, can... I'm quite optimistic. And, you know, the beauty of uh, being an American um, is, uh, you know, for, for years and years, I was uh, uh, ashamed of being an American, right? Um, but the beauty of being an American is that uh, we actually do have a significant amount of freedom. And, you know, there, we, we actually can say no. There's a lot of countries you can't say no. You get killed for saying no. Say no to what? Well, you can say no to... Um, you, you can decide how you're going to live your life in America. Maybe this is... Maybe this is... Uh, maybe this is... What's the word? Rosy, rosy, rosy tinted glasses. But, you know, we, you know, we can decide to come live together in a commune and say, you know, we're not going to support these values, okay? And um, there's countries in the world where you get killed for that, literally. So, you know, we can say no, like no one is forcing us to buy, to buy anything, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so, we, you know, we can say, look, you know, our value is of creating community. And by the way, this go full circle with, uh, you know, Dieter Doom, like he really, he really found that living in community was a very powerful add-on or a very powerful um, uh, tool for, for building consciousness and for building effectiveness as, as, social, as, uh, as social political leaders. So, you know, all of us here, we've chosen to come into community and to share our emotional life with each other to, you know, to a, to a greater lesser degree. So that, I mean, that itself, that's a revolutionary act from my perspective. Uh, without splitting hairs, or maybe I am splitting hairs, I'm thinking about um, what other countries you we can't form communities in, um, because as we know, as members of the Intentional Communities Movement, there are thousands of communities and communes all over the world. So North Korea, probably, you know, I would imagine you probably couldn't form a commune in, but other than that, I mean, Burma? what? Well, I mean, so Burma's under a military junta. So if a country there's, is under a military there's, there's, junta, there's, there's then no perhaps freedom. China, there's no freedom to do this in China. I, I, I mean, I, I, I would, <laughs> I would take issue with that. Really, you I think, think so? That, that there are, I mean, there's there there are certainly there are are many things that people are not free to do in China. But I don't, I don't know that that. A property arrangement is necessarily one of those things, given uh, that private property is. Okay. I mean, right. I, 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 and again, you know, again, I mean, then we're splitting hairs. But it, no, no, that it's, American it's, it's, exceptionalism it's kind point. of rubs me the wrong way no, because it's, it's honestly, I mean, our life expectancy in America is also ten to fifteen years less if you're poor than most of the rest of the world, uh, and so, uh, you know, so yeah, I am actually kind of put off by this idea that we're lucky in some way to, I mean, uh, we have freedoms that we fought for uh, and that people continuously are trying to take away from us. But, but, you know, it also seems like, like um, 
I mean, I mean, I will concede that it's good to have the ability to and the option of of living communally, sure, and living yeah. cooperatively. Yeah, yeah. We we could get into a whole other other conversation about that. So you know, that's perhaps not a, not a, not a good direction to go. I mean, I will just say that you know, at least we have a functioning legal system in America, which mm-hmm. we, you know, we, they don't have in China and they don't have in, in Russia currently. Yeah, I mean, you know. I think you could say almost anything about the lack of due process in Russia. You could find historical examples of, but again, I mean, I think that, so, I mean, maybe we could inquire, maybe not today, but maybe we can inquire why you feel like exceptionalism is such an important part of that narrative for you, but we don't need it because in terms of, of, of your, of the political strategies that you would, you would put forward. Right. You know, no, I'll, 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 those I'll take would, that. Well, those would stand on their own, right? No, I'll, I'll take that feedback. I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily attached to um, American exceptionalism. I just, yeah, that's a and that's a, a kind of a longer conversation. Sure, sure, right. And and I should mention as well, like my political awakening was really, you know, when we was this there was the second uh, Trump election where we very nearly, where we very nearly came close to spending another four years um, under uh, the. The, the leadership of a, of a, of a lunatic. Of, of a fascist. Yeah. yeah. Of a so, fascist. You know, that was my political awakening. So, so just yeah. so, you know, it's fairly, so, it's fairly yeah. recent. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, did anybody want to, I mean, anybody want to throw in any well, commentary about the discussion? Well, I'm listening to this determinism and this, uh, this idea and the psycho part of it uh, as a true psycho myself. Um, I, I find this to be that What's holding us back here is, I believe, what Marx called for is the third and final thing to bring about a true communist revolution was a fundamental change in the nature of humanity, that human beings are inherently greedy, and that that was one of the reasons why we weren't going to have a revolution uh, in that state, and my agreement with that idea is what brings me to be perhaps more of just a radical socialist <coughs> instead of a true communist <coughs> is that, you know, we can stop capitalism from metastasizing and being the cancer that consumes us all, but it will still exist in some fashion and harnessing it and putting it in its place other than a bonfire um, is what is necessary for us to continue um, on, a, on a revolutionary path that, as we evolve towards, you know, a more egalitarian society and group of people, in that we're not going to get rid of people who think that it's okay to be a billionaire. They're not going away. Can we... What if we stripped them of all political power? Well, right. I mean, we could strip them of their power, but they would still be there. Right. So, so yeah. So, I mean, so so the idea of, of sort of a universal rejection of or elimination of that mindset, you think is not is not necessarily possible. I, I no, I don't think it is. I think that you I know mean, we try. We had massive, and it, there are things we can do to to harness it and rein it in. We could have a 99% wealth tax on every penny made over a certain level, like 
you know, and that would be one step towards eliminating this class of individuals that makes it possible for people to get away with being outright dicks. And it's not just billionaires. It's, 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 it, their sure. mindset literally trickles down to the rest of society. Sure. You know, I can, if I have sufficient means, even if I'm still dirt poor, but I'm slightly better off than you, you know, I still have the means to some, in, you know, in some way take advantage of or will take advantage of you because I, I have the capacity to do so. And those people are not going away. And so capitalism isn't going away. We just need to harness it and put it where it belongs, which is at the heart of the, which is not at the heart, but which is an engine that helps continue to power the revolution. And, you know, I'm sorry, unless Elon Musk actually goes to Mars, we're stuck with that fucker. <laughs> are know? we? Are we though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. What were you, what were you going to say, Joe? I just said exactly. Are we? Uh, I mean, maybe uh, like. Um, I think the interesting thing here is like what Marco is talking about is, or some of the ideas Marco is talking about, at least, or whatever he's evolved from. I don't know these like thinkers that you guys are describing or any of the literature, but um, or writing, but. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what is necessary to solve all of it. Even what Jason just talked about is like having true community, having truly connected community is the only way. Like, and it's like consenting, authentically interacting community solves almost all of those problems. Not to say weird stuff won't happen still or something sometimes, but if we were like generations into like, a truly just like authentically connected with like resources like can create the resources that they need together in a closed system autonomous whatever it would work and people would believe in that at that point like only a couple generations it would take i think it, it would be possible to actually like have it just be the way it is you know it's like we're just this way because we're just this way and there's way too many people that are this way that this billionaire mindset is widespread i shouldn't say too many that's like a ridiculous well, the statement, creation but. of new norms though like we could we could create new norms because our needs are being met around those norms exactly and yeah just I mean, following what what marco was saying or uh, in terms of meeting those those needs we could we could do that but yeah but it's not that simple right um i mean you would say it's not necessarily that simple because the residual sort of I mean, there's still something going on psychologically. Well, we we got to discharge ten, you know, ten thousand years of patriarchy, and we have to sort of, um, yeah, it's not easy, and we have to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. and we have to sort of state what it is that we want, have the courage to to speak frankly what's going on with us, and to say things like, you know, I felt a little jealous when you said that, or you know, I was hurt when you said that, or ouch. Or, you know, I'm needing, I'm feeling uh, scared right now. I feel fear. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are the conversations that that need to happen. Those are also the, the ability to say that right. and the context in which someone is comfortable saying that were the targets of the rhetoric of the Trump administration exactly. and the Trump movement yeah, right. and, and the MAGA movement, right? Vulnerability. It was always vulnerability. It was always... You're being weak. 
you need to be strong. If you died of COVID, that's because you were weak. If you're afraid of COVID and wear a mask, it's because you're weak. Uh, you're, and, and, and it, it was feminized, right? People are, you know, women are weak, women are stupid, all of these, it was all of those things. I mean, people, they were, women weren't just weak, they were dogs. Yeah, they were dehumanized. They were de-completely yeah. humanized. So, yeah, so dehumanization becomes part of that same attack on vulnerability. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. Just real quick, I think the the thing that has like, or some part of what has to be said, and it connects to the like American exceptionalism thing. And I'm not saying you believe strongly in the need for that type of outlook, but uh, it exists in a lot of the type of movements you're talking about, or at least I think like in the actual happening of it, that uh, it's like you need to have the access and like in be included enough in society to be able to even be like thinking about the needs that you're talking about you know like we all need to be able to say these things like you said like i need to be loved and love and be loved you know basically like there's a huge amount of people that don't even have like the basic access to be able to be in a position to be like uh Thinking like that, or whatever, right. or you know, yeah. to be for those to be their direct, their, for those to be their needs, for those type of things to be the needs people are thinking about. Like, there's not enough, yeah, access right. to a lot of people. You know? Yeah, because you can't even think about the, those things if you, you know, don't have enough to eat, or if you don't have shelter over your head, or things like that. So, I mean, I guess that would be the first question I would ask in terms of a praxis of you, that uh, a you know liberatory psychological practice. Um, you would want to make sure that everyone had access to treatment, right? That would that goes without saying, right? Well, I mean, like you know, like Jody says, uh, you, you can't really do a revolution if you're if you're starving and there's no food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we would have to overcome those things. Well, we in America, you know, and and I and I don't necessarily want to get into the sort of the American exceptionalism thing because it's like like you said, Jody, it's it's not really core, but. The reason I the reason I bring that up is that um, I'm I'm very passionate about my Americanism since my political awakening, which which is just as I say was like year, less than a year ago. So it's very new. <laughs> just because just because I think that we are the only remaining democratic superpower. All right. Um, In what way are we democratic? Uh, uh, well, we have a functioning legal system. Is it? It's more functioning than many other places. Isn't that an empirical question? Yes. So, so if I say I see a lot of empirical data that would would problematize that notion that our system is more functional than other countries at this time. Uh, I mean, if you're if you are a black person in America. You are always already in danger of extrajudicial execution the moment you leave your domicile, right. and sometimes in your domicile. Right. There is no place. So there is zero due process. There is no safe place right. to be an American of color, a black, a black American, right. or a black resident right. of America. How, in, how, you know, how would you say that is a, a even a relatively functioning like? Okay, I, I agree with you. Okay. And this is a good point. And, you know, maybe if this is the, if this is the direction of the conversation is going today, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with the flow. But 
in Russia, you're, in a, you're under a single party dictatorship in which if you do not agree, you will also be shot. Mm-hmm. All right. And you'll be like much more likely to be shot or imprisoned in China than here. So that sounds, it sounds to me like, right, right. like the lack of due process in Russia and, or China, China, China parallels the lack of due process for black Americans. Well, you know, you may have a point. I, I, I've, I've never been to China. Uh, no. Well, I think it's important. To, like, that's part of the deal. Is, like, basically, like, there's different classes in America. Struck, like, clear, distinct, extreme differences of class. And you're talking from a class that is only part of America. You know what I mean? Like, that's real. That's what I grew up with, too. Same type of deal. And that's a real thing. But the point is, it doesn't exist for everyone. But I just have a quick question like do you think other these other superpowers you're talking about would try to influence the entire world so widespread as the united states does if the united states didn't exist you know what i mean like do you think they would try to china and russia like really try to like reach out and control the world the way the united states does absolutely you think they would in the same I mean, they like, control I their own country. Hegemonic control. theory. Like, I definitely think Putin would. Like, I, mean, well, I, I think that China know. is. Putin I think that China is. Yeah. No, I, no, I mean, and I, and I, and, and yeah, you know, like, the sure. new Silk Road. Yeah. Ukraine and stuff. I'm talking about, though, this insidious American way of, like, it's the culture, like the capitalism thing, like the corporations mm-hmm. that are, like, born here or whatever, and the ideas and products that are born here. Well, I think it's like, precisely because Russia is a capitalist power. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely because China abandoned Marxism in favor of capitalism, uh, but under the veneer of this weird authoritarian capitalism that they're practicing now, that they would do those things. Because I think that just as it is exceptionalist to say America is better than other countries, I think it might also be exceptionalist to say America is worse than other countries. The problem is capitalism and patriarchy, I think, by right. extension. Well, Not right. necessarily, you know, like... To me, Russia is a, a, a you know is not morally better in no, any way than the than the United States. I don't mean like that, but they somehow have like a like state powers like producing things there and like having their own resources and whatever, and taking resources from neighboring countries and taking over neighboring countries mm-hmm. and all this type of thing. Obviously, but, but like we're a big juggernaut at that. We're, we're, yeah, we're, like yeah. it would be hard to change us in this fundamental way where like we have the you know, United States has so much like is so connected to the whole world in whatever different ways like in the military and mm-hmm. also corporations like resource extracting in other countries and stuff like that like with the military's help or whatever or without the military with foreign military's help or anything like what would really happen if it would be hard for the U.S. to, I say, like, fall, change, or whatever, you know, like, it's like, we just affect so many things in the world that it's scary to think, like, if we try to affect any real change here at home, it involves also, like, these consequences Mm -hmm. for so many Mm -hmm. things in the world, for other people in other countries, in ways that we can't even imagine, that's when we get into really stuff that we can't imagine, is like, you know. Well, I, that, okay, so that reminds me of something else that is part of this sort of, sort of conversation, uh, I think, about liberalism. When we talk about liberalism in America, which is the sort of, you know, the, the somewhere between um, 
you know, the Clintons and maybe the politics of this administration, the Biden administration, and maybe a little further left than that. It seems like we have, we do have a lot of freedoms, exceptional freedoms and an exceptional and, and in our history have had an exceptional public space and different public institutions of, 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 you know, civic, you know, life and those things. But it seems like those have all come at the expense of peripheral countries and the expense of peripheral classes of humans in the United States, too. Just as Greek society, you know, functioned as this high artistic, you know, incredibly genius, you know, wonderful cultural society, that was only, that was possible because of slavery in Greece. And in a sense, the American liberal experiment, which says we can have both free markets and some sort of sense of social and civic responsibility, that that has tended to come off the backs of, you know, Central and South America and slavery and, you know, a lot of these these other things, too. For sure. But I I think that at the same time, when it comes to the American exceptionalism idea, that even Dr. King bought into that. Uh, You know, we're here to cash the Mm -hmm. check. In that, fact, he, that you yeah. owe us yeah. in fact, for all he used the work it. that we did. <laughs> right. He used American exceptionalism to say, you have not measured up to, you have broken your promises, right. which I will also defend as part of like, there is something good. If there is something good about that American liberal vision, it's that. It's that you can deploy those promises against the powerful to say, you have not measured up to the promises that you've made. And I think that that maybe does reflect some of the values that you're that you're talking about marco i think a lot of that movement did rely upon the idea that it that america was was unique in that experiment that Mm -hmm. uh you know britain may have gotten rid of slavery before the united states did but let's not let us not fool ourselves racism is still very much alive across europe not only that when we went to war in world war one against germany uh German women had the right to vote <laughs> and right. American women did not have the right to vote. Uh, and then, and we called that war a war for democracy. <laughs> so that's kind of funny, but that is funny, but I don't want to short shrift uh, where you're going. I want to go, I want to okay. give you some space to go back to maybe talking about more about this, you know, what it looks like when we have right. communities where our needs are met and such. Right. right. Um, yeah, well, th- thank you all for this, this conversation. It's it's gone into some interesting directions. We're probably going to have to pick up again, um, won't mm-hmm. we? But um, yeah, um, I think the, the 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 thing that I think is most important um, in, um, in in my thought, which is it's essentially coming through the authentic relating movement, which is authentic relating movement. It's a grassroots movement. It started about twenty years ago, um, and I can tell the story at some of the point um, um, but it's, it's now expanded into this global movement there's authentic relating communities in about maybe 60 cities there's uh, you know f- there's six major schools that ter- teach a practice called circling so circling is uh, the training camp circling is the training camp for for doing authentic relating and I'd be happy to lead a circle here and see how you all like it but um, circling is essentially it's an in the moment, experience it's it's it, you know it's 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 a place where we simply focus on what's alive in the space and speak into that space you know our thoughts or feelings or ideas whatever and and get 
you know, speak our vulnerability and sort of get feedback um, of of how other people are impacted by this. This which and this is the cycle of sort of vulnerability and uh, you know feedback response really builds connection very very powerfully very quickly. So you know, circling is a practice. I highly recommend it. Um, there's you know all kinds of access points. I mean, you could read my book. Um, it's called the Circling and Authentic Relating Practice Guide. You can Google that circling guide. Um, so um, it, it's essential practice. It's actually not rocket science. It does take a little while. And 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 this is the other thing that I want to say that's, that's important is that we are all conditioned into suppressing our humanity. And this is actually mm-hmm. one of the most um, powerful things that has kept American capitalism and American consumerism going for so long. It's this fantasy that by gaining wealth and power, we're going to be happy and successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's actually, you know, and you know, some to some degree, it works. You know, it's possible that you know, ten percent of the population who control the wheels of of, of the economy, or maybe even five percent, or maybe it's one percent, um, are maybe happier than the rest of us, but probably not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, and so you you. It's 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 difficult to, to to really liber liberate ourselves from my perspective, and not everyone agrees with me. But it's very difficult to liberate oneself from cultural programming, which generates a lot of development, developmental trauma. And developmental trauma it's a very large conversation because it's not just there's there's actually there's ancestral trauma involved. Mm-hmm. It's just by the fact that you know if your parents were alcoholic, much more chance that you're being an alcoholic. And once you went you know. Deep deprogramming or discharging ancestral trauma, it tends to be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. We all have ancestral trauma by the fact that we've been raised in, in, in 10,000 years of patriarchy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Capitalism has forced us, though, I think, into sublimation of our mm-hmm. distress and then provided a capitalist alternative for us to deal with that, like paying a therapist mm-hmm. or <laughs> hiring well, I mean, a, you know. Well, I mean, I was all, I'm also thinking about, I was thinking about when you were talking about the need to love and be loved and be heard and all of these things. And there are all of these, all of these things have sublimated analogs in capitalist society that are uh, as the, uh, the, um, uh, the computer uh, in the uh, in the spaceship in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy could always make something that was almost but not quite entirely unlike tea, and uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking about how capitalism makes something that is almost but not entirely unlike the the authentic desire that you have. Uh, so yeah, you know yeah. that would be the sexualization of the entertainment industry or. Uh, the or you know cultural dating practices like speed dating or dating apps that are all commercialized or, you know all these things none of which really give you con- the connection that you're seeking but give you these sort of distorted versions of, uh, of that Pre- connection precisely precisely you know they got to give us something because if they give us nothing you know we would have a revolution and they don't want a revolution right mm-hmm. but but this you know we were we were watching the century of the south movie which is you know that's a, that's a perfect case in point is 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 um, after the uh, 
after the you know between the, after the first world war they 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 needed to sell products in order to keep the economy going you know even products that you know and and they needed to um so they they, they needed to program us that um having that washing machine or that new car made you happy and it worked mm-hmm. <laughs> well or it it, it worked and it, it caused us to buy the washing created machine a, a new car right a system of profit you know a, a profit system and uh and a um i love them the by the way the the music of the band Crass, they have uh-huh. lots of songs about this sort of getting sucked into these consumer illusions while the nuclear state hovers over you, protecting you and making all these promises to you. They're right. not actual authentic promises and your life is not actually authentic, but, uh, you know, but it's all that you have. And, and, but the, I think the interesting thing about this is that it, it is also you know, all of these things are also enforced in ways that range from being very subtle me- mechanisms of enforcement to if you get too close to the edge, if you get to, if you become a genuine threat to the hegemony of the system, the system will use absolute violence against you, absolute totalitarian violence against you, even in uh, uh, nominal democracies and nominal, you know, democratic right. uh, nations. There is that edge, uh, and that's also on the other side of the edge is where that periphery is. So, you know, right. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama made the judgment call early in the, that administration uh, that they had to uh, support a violent coup in Honduras in order for the American way of life. Uh, to continue. They made that call. And I think it's important that we know that it was Obama and Clinton that made that call. It wasn't Donald Trump that made that call, but it was every bit as brutal uh, because once you get onto the other side of that liberal bubble, it's all brutal. It's all brutality. And I think what Trump does is, is fascism, which is a little bit different, which is bringing that brutality inside in order to quash popular movements and quash sexual liberation and other types of liberation. Um, but for those who are on the other side of the bubble, it's always like that. You're right. always under those types of threats. Uh, and so I think that it's so important because for us to remember that because I think part of the, this illusion that we maintain is that somehow, you know, that, that we can achieve that harmony, you know, without cost, uh, you know, without, all of us achieving it together. Right. And, and so I think that's also an important part of the piece of the puzzle. Uh, and also why, uh, why it's a political question. And, and we haven't really talked about why what you're talking about is a political question as opposed to just a method of therapy. So I, I would like to explore that. Maybe we don't get to explore that you know, this time around, but, but we, we have a few minutes. What, what are some other well, things that you think are important? To, well, I'm to just, I'm out? sort of just reminded of a, something that came up in our prior talk is that, it, you know, it's possible to be really uh, politically focused um, and you know, like really to, to ignore and deny our own Michigas, I call it, or even developmental trauma, or even psychopathology, and you know, you, you know, you you probably know people like that. But it's also possible to be too focused on, to, you know, too relationally focused, or too uh, immediately focused on 
just living your life and just to ignore the fact that that uh, that you know that we live in very oppressive political systems. So it's almost like keeping the balance is a little tricky, right? Right. Which kind of circles back to Reich and right and some you know Reich. It, it, Reich was expelled from both the psychoanalytic society and the Communist Party. Right. And, because you know, and they, and each side felt like he was paying too much attention to the other. <laughs> uh, I hate it when mom and dad are fighting, but, uh, but you know, that, so, so I think that's, that's interesting right. because if what we're talking about is true, then it seems like you have to hold all of those things to be right. in, in, not necessarily always of equal influence or importance, but you always, you have to ever be aware of, of the influence of all of those intersecting right. realities. Right. And, 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 and I think specifically, you know, relationality and vulnerability tends to be a blind spot of the, you know, political activist movement. But it's, I mean, it's, it's a blind spot of people everywhere. Um, it's, 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 it's hard to learn these uh, communication practices, even though they're relatively simple in principle. Like, and it's you know get, you know giving a good empathy statement um, is uh, log you know it's uh, c conceptually extremely simple, but it's actually not that easy to do in practice, right? Uh, and same thing, uh, if, you know you know providing accurate reflections or 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 or, or, or carrying feedback or, uh, or 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 reaching out to people is is inherently scary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Something just came to mind, um, and it's no, we're not even anywhere near Christmas, uh, but every Christmas uh, I play uh, the song Christmas in the Trenches, the John McCutcheon song, Christmas in the Trenches, at, uh, at our fellowship uh, Christmas um, uh, celebration. Right. Um, and uh, it's about uh, World War I and German and U.S. and or British and German soldiers um, in France uh, on the battlefields, and it's Christmas Eve, and they, uh, they're both sides are kind of standing down, and you know they hear they start hearing Christmas carols in German and in, and in English, and then they all go out and and, right. and drink and play soccer uh, together, uh, and exchange photos and cigarettes and hang out uh, and everything, and and uh, that I guess. Around that time, there were several of these things breaking out. There were truces breaking out across the right. the various, uh, you know, really fucked up front lines of uh, and battle lines of, of World War One across France. And and uh, um, and although some people say that you know maybe it was e maybe culturally it's easier to imagine British and Germans getting together because they're basically the same, you know, they're cousins. Uh, and maybe the, if there were more pronounced cultural differences, that wouldn't necessarily happen. But I, I don't know that that's true. I tend to take stories like that and say there are just as many signs of our shared humanity, uh, and particularly among cla cla same classes of people, like soldiers and stuff, right? right? Like they both kind of look at each other and go, I have more in common with you than either of us have in common with our, you know, with, with the big guys. And, and so I, I feel like that sort of thing does give me hope. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that the idea that the idea of our sameness, but that that even that story begins with a gesture of vulnerability, arguably, which is the idea of singing 
religious songs from your culture, you know, as yeah. sort of this ritualistic thing. And so, you know, I think that there's there's probably lots of different ways that you could find examples of of when we've done that, even in really unlikely situations. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful story. Yeah, the thing that's scary with that is I think that it, that requires exactly just a stronger cultural connected cultural identity that like what well, was shared but even if it wasn't the mm-hmm. exact same shared culture just right. having that there had to be christmas recognized yeah. importance yeah. by both cultures yeah. you know like of this time then they could do it but the scary thing is like as we have become desensitized into capitalism deeper and deeper uh-huh. you know it's like we don't have a lot of us i think that connectedness to care to well the nature of fascism season, you know, i mean to even notice just yeah student or whatever yeah, no, I was, I was going to say the nature of fascism, too. One of the, the things that happens is um, that, you know, that, that their fascism is essentially also a movement, also a mass movement uh, that seeks to dehumanize and to uh, justify these hierarchies and these violent hierarchies. Um, but as Reich, you know, theorized and many other people theorized, that happens under certain conditions and so, uh, you know, understanding the interplay of uh, external forces and internal forces probably helps us, can help us understand why, why we dehumanize each other or why we can't reach some of that shared understanding, too. Right. And, you know, I'll just say one more thing, and that might be a good, good place to, to, to pause this conversation. And, and sort of the, the reason that, you know, uh, cult psychology has a tremendous explanatory value of, of all of this, and it, it kind of fairly easily explains uh, fascism that, you know, people seek affiliation. They, they want to feel a sense of belonging to, to a group of people, and they want to feel validated in their ideas, opinions, and values, right? And, you know, it's dehumanizing, but it's important also to say that people go willingly into those situations because these core human needs, this core human need of, of, of affiliation is so powerful that it it, it kind of overrides good judgment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, some of us are refugees from religions, right. too. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about the World War One situation. We're talking about two Protestant countries fighting on the foreign turf of a Catholic country mm-hmm. uh, for the the what again? I mean, <laughs> what was the purpose of World War One? Who the fuck knows? But all we That's know, why they couldn't do... That, that's why they fucked up that first Wonder Woman movie. Because they had it take place during World War One, but they tried to paint the Germans as Nazi-like uh-huh. in yeah, some yeah. way. They were but it's not, like, no, that's they not... They wore different helmets. They had little... They literally helmets. wore different you know, helmets. They yeah. were different yeah. Nazis. They weren't yeah. Nazis. They were yeah. Kaiserites. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah, there was, a, it was like maybe some feudalism, yeah, like yeah, as opposed to you know the incredibly progressive Brits, uh, yeah. Anyway, but but I digress. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I I I find that 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 story interesting, and I've and as a, a former member of a very repressive regime, religiously, I've heard that story any number of times, mm-hmm. repeated over and over again about how. Christmas is the great uniter, and Christ is the great uniter, and he's going to bring everybody together, and we'll bring everybody together, and yet they went back to fighting the next fucking day. They were ordered to, though. No, right. it's, this, that, this is very important. The officer caste 
had to repress and eventually make illegal to their to and all this all anti fraternization right. kind of laws that were passed in the military after that were responses to that. But I would say, sure, it was some Christmas songs that started it, but it was really booze and cigarettes that brought them together right. and wanting to play soccer and probably being really fucking sick of fighting because. I agree that that that's not in our if there if 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 there is any sort of core human nature that that is not an authentic that fighting each other and, and popping each other in the head uh, with rifles is not part of our human nature. Right. And and you talk and if you talk about trauma, man, that's the worst. Yes, being absolutely. In a, being in a war, that's yeah, the worst. Trauma collective war trauma, which right. then perpetuates itself domestically yeah. among right. extreme four percent in America trauma. Yeah, it's like same thing. Yeah, yeah, and economic conscription now, uh, you know, and all of those, all of those fun things. Anyway, well, cool. Yeah, I think this is a great place to to stop, and and I think at some, you know, in our next discussion, I would love to uh, to talk a little bit about the the sort of membrane between violence and nonviolence, um, and uh, and how how the different ways that we might relate to that as well. Sure, sure. That sounds great. good. Okay. Are you having a good time at Solidarity Collective, Marco? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm. Uh, this is. Are we off? Are we off tape here? No. This is no. We're no. We're. This is. We're segueing. Well, you want to describe? You you you, you want to yeah. describe life at Solidarity Collective? Sure. Or or just what you, what have you enjoyed about it? Um. Well, it seems like there's a, just a lot of collective energy that's coming together right now, and um, I've kind of been dying to get off the computer and out of my head and into some, you know, hands-on projects. And um, I've really been enjoying mowing the lawn. I've really been enjoying watching Jordy, uh, Jordy's um, impact of lawn mowing. Um, I'm loving just kind of cleaning up all the stuff around here. Um, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying these conversations. Uh, you know, this is, it's kind of the life that I've always wanted for myself. Um, I don't like to live alone. I never liked living alone. And, you know, the happiest times of my life when I was running the commune with my ex-wife in Philadelphia, which was 2007, 2010. And I've been trying to get back to that ever since. And I'm just hoping that this is it. <laughs> well, we're glad. Glad you like it. All right. Great. Well, thank you. Well, it didn't... Um, uh, it's We have a whole bunch of old tires that we have painted... But I um, scrounged money from friends and family and then out of my own pocket and got the paint and the dirt and a lot of labor assistance. And we got all these tires and we painted them in the rainbow flag and we're paint we painted the other ones, another batch, um, <clears throat> 36 in each batch. Um, with the color is of the trans flag and uh, putting them down, filling them up and planting them with mostly uh, sunflowers, some wildflowers and also some regular random vegetables that need a home. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, hopefully a lot of the sunflowers will come up and we'll have a nice, really beautiful backdrop for a photo come like Labor Day or something. So keep talking about that. Well, come in. Chewy, it's okay, stop parking. Come in. Come in, Nancy. Make, some, Nancy make, make sure we make some space for Nancy yeah. in the front there. Hey, Sarah. And then we can, um, I don't know how we want, we can position the, the screen for the lyrics any way we want. Um, 
please. I am so sorry because we've sort of arranged it like this, but anyway. I so mean, Nancy's here. Right. You can pull up the office chair if you want to put down a mat. There's a room over there. There's a room next to Eric. Or we we could go in COVID. COVID COVID inoculated. We're all we've all been we've all been yeah. juiced. Jab, juice, jab, jab, juice, jab, whatever. You know, <laughs> the cream in the clear. <laughs> I'm proud of the immune at this point. How's it going, Nancy? Yeah. Someone's gonna have to help me get out of this. You're, I'll fix you. We're fine. We have refreshments later too. Um, we're waiting just a few more minutes because Sean's coming with more beer, um, and uh, with uh, also with a, a vegetable dish. Uh, Sarah, who's uh, everyone's out of view except for sort of me and like a third of Antifa. Uh, and so that's, that's the way we want it. We're keeping it, keeping it real. Mm. Uh, and we are, but we are live streaming. So uh, we've got, we're going to, we've got Sarah over there. We got Mike in the corner. We got Derek, Nancy and Antifa. And I'm Matt and Sean's on his way. I would say that the existence of an Antifa <laughs> certainly implies <laughs> the existence of an Uncle Fa. What's her name that has <laughs> Roxy? Was hanging political crap just before the election come down my street? And I explained to her how that my father who fought in World War II was Antifa. All right. My mother on the rationing board was Antifa. I'm Antifa, it's inherited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. She was just looking for at some people, life. for some people it's inherited apparently, but I, I mean, I can't speak to Roxy et al's um, you know, ancestry, uh, but they certainly don't seem Antifa, they seem Profa. Profa. Yeah. yeah. Like in prophylactic. They, yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, in, as in needed one. Right, yeah, uh, their parents but, uh, one. Uh, should have used one. The people who took that stage knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Did you go? Who was it? Somebody went and recorded Budget? I, I didn't go. I, did, I didn't even know I didn't even it. know about it until after the fact. I didn't know that's about it until how, after, but that's I was how very bubble glad. That, what was this, this Patriot? The Patriot rally last year. Oh, before, yeah, yeah. I think it was before I, the election. I, I, we knew about it before. I was just like, I'm not going to waste my time. My bike ran over last year, so I wasn't going to fuck with them again. Goddamn truck yeah. Nazis. Yeah, hey, the, you know the truck Nazis did run over Antifa's bike last year. Do you know the guy? He has a white Jeep with bright red wheels on it. It's a big Jeep. He's mm. tall. He pretty much. Are there flags? Any flags involved? No, no. But. It wasn't the guy with the shitty gray Jeep. No, no. This is a white Jeep. It's a big Jeep. It's not like a, like a CJ, but it's like a big Jeep. By the way. Um, imperialism will never be get freedom, pledge no allegiance. Um, yeah, and and uh, what was it? Uh, God hates flags. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God hates flags. Uh, no, my uh, no, I'm yeah. trying to track down the guy's name because he's been hurt. He stopped Jesus because I told him I own no borders. But he, I, you know, I stand on the because corner, Jesus. right? And he's been he kept for like a couple of months, he would come and harass me. I mean, literally, uh, verbally, just. Crazy bullshit. Like, All right. I could shoot you and nobody would ever be able to tell where I shot you from a record channel like that. And all the time I'm standing there, have you noticed there's a camera right up there run by the state? Yeah. <laughs> They've got your shit, man. They know who you are. Right. <laughs> but I haven't caught a picture of them.
I haven't seen him the last couple of weeks. I think he's out of town. All righty. Uh, hey, Sean's here. Beer and uh, vegetables and dip and salsa. Sweet. Yeah. We're going to sing some songs. We're all out of... Uh, if you sit there, you will be front and center. I don't know if uh, you want to you do that. You will be the face of someone already yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, didn't think you no, wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is an imperfect setup, especially given the lyric sheet that we've got there, and I do apologize for it. Um, for some reason, um, music and uh, labor songs has... Uh, and uh, early labor figures has been figuring a lot in just things that we've been falling in and out of here uh, at uh, Solidarity Collective. Uh, and we've been talking about Eugene Debs. We've you know, talked about, we've been doing, doing a few other historically significant things and we play some songs. And so we thought that we would do for the, for the benefit of the 4th of July, independence from imperialism day uh, for us, uh, we thought we would do a few of these songs. We have fed you all for a thousand years And you hail us still unfed Though there's never a dollar of all your wealth. That's good. But Mark's workers dead. We have healed our best for to give you rest. And you lie on a crimson wool. For if blood be the price of all your wealth. We, God, we have paid in full. Sorry, a little pause before that last line. We can, let's, let's start over. We have fed you all for a thousand years and you hail us still unfed. Though there's never a dollar of all your wealth, but marks the workers dead. We have yielded our best for to give you rest, and you lie on crimson wool. For if blood be the price of all your wealth, good God, we have paid in full. There's never a mind-blown skyward now. But we're buried alive for you. There's never a wreck drift shoreward now. But we are its ghastly crew. Go reckon our dead by the forges red and the factories where we spin. If blood be the price of your accursed wealth. Good God, we have paid it in. That's a little, that's a, a, an error. The proper version of that is, good God, we have paid it in, which rhymes with spin. So that's interesting. Someone, this is not the authentic cry of the toil, I think. This warrants an investigation, I think, of some kind. 
but we've got it because the next one is is fine and we're told it's your legal share which reminds me very much of the why do your law books kick me off my good land which i think is my my favorite lyric in the previous song that we sang we have fed you all for a thousand years for that was our doom you know from the days when you chained us in your fields to the strike of a week ago you've taken all the things you've taken all the bings and we're told it's your legal share but if blood be the price of your lawful wealth good god we have bought it fair and I figure someday somebody's going to break out with a uh, if blood be the price of your lawful wealth fuck you we have bought it fair <laughs> like I just imagine at some point that's going to be the, uh, get changed up. Yeah. it's going to change up it's the next logical step for it give yourselves a hand yeah. thank you so much Music is so music is so important. Ah, see right there. Music is so important to the movement, um, and uh, and um, there's so much uh, faux patriotism going on this weekend, and so much glitz. And somewhere right this minute, Lee Greenwood is playing "God Bless the USA" um, oh. you know, to an audience of people in MAGA hats, and this this is the alternative. This is the. Uh, I just hope that guy who keeps throwing his colostomy bag at Kid Rock's kick-ass honky-tonk bar and grill shows up again and throws his colostomy bag at Kid Rock's honky-tonk bar and grill on Fourth of July. I have never even heard of this. Oh yeah. Am I living under a rock? What's there's some there's some guy who kept showing up at Kid Rock's kick-ass honky-tonk bar and grill. If you like this content and want us to keep making it available for free, please become a subscriber at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. Again, that's patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. 